Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. I'm so pleased to introduce Matt Kelly, CEO of JBG Smith, the largest uh, public company headquartered in this market in real estate. Matt uh, began his career at, at JBG in 2004, and I met him then. He had already been in private equity for several years, come from Harvard Business School and prior to that Dartmouth University college and had grown up in the Midwest in St. Louis. So we talk about all that. We also talk about some of his accomplishments, including the Amazon HQ2 deal, which is, you know, a landmark transaction that he was right in the middle of from the beginning and all the way through to the end. And he talks about that in some detail. It's fascinating to to listen about that and also about the philosophy of the company, what what direction he's taking it and some of the things he is working on day to day and is thinking with regard to the markets today, as well as the future and then his personal goals. With four children, he has a lot on his plate, especially now with the pandemic. It's pretty interesting. And he's a very capable guy and extremely humble, as you will hear toward the end of the conversation. So without further ado, here is Matt Kelly. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. So Matt, you emerged as CEO of JBG Smith after the IPO. Talk about your role and day-to-day responsibilities there. How has it changed since becoming a public company? Sure. And thanks for having me, John. I appreciate you doing this. The day-to-day role that I had when I was one of six managing partners changed quite a bit when we changed our structure to a more traditional public company structure. Things were a bit more distributed before. They're more concentrated as far as kind of where where the ultimate decision-making stops. And that's just a function of the structure. And so what that did for me and for a handful of others is it put many of us in the line of certain decisions that maybe we you know hadn't been too heavily involved in in the past. We've tried to accommodate that while not losing much of the entrepreneurial spirit and flexibility and freedom that a lot of members of our team enjoy in doing their jobs and really kind of being given a ball and you know given the opportunity to go run with it. As you can imagine, when you're when your board ultimately holds you responsible for everything that's going on in the company, you have to have some level of awareness, at least, of everything that's going on, even if you're not directly involved. And so a little bit more of my time is now spent on kind of the oversight and accountability of more of the functions of the firm. But you know, the truth is my day-to-day primary role of really being on the transaction side of our business, the investment side of our business, making investment decisions is not a whole lot different than it was before. I had a very prominent role in investor relationships that we had as a private company, and I still have that role. It's many of the same investors, but a lot of new ones. And then 
there is a little bit more of the, you know, what I'll call kind of the, you know, champion cheerleader, uh, you know, cheerleader for the, the culture and the team and everything else. That's still a very shared role and responsibility of the whole senior team. But especially right now, you know, during this pandemic, when everyone is working remotely, my responsibility on that front is a bit more focused and a lot more of our team are looking to me to hear about what's going on with the company because they don't have the opportunities bumping into other people to, to get that information. And so I have in some ways because of the pandemic, but also because of my new role, been looked to as you know, somebody who is going to communicate with everybody about how we're doing and what's going on. And, and that certainly was not a role that I had prior to being a CEO or, or you know, running the company as I am now. So you mentioned it, the evolution of JBG Company, the private company into a public JBG Smith was a huge transition. You've integrated two large local investment companies into one culture and reviewing the entire portfolio to evaluate what's best to hold, sell, or develop. What were your biggest challenges personally through this transition? There were a lot of different challenges there because we were going from being private to being public. We were going from being you know, a certain size to being almost four times that size in terms of assets. We were going from being a partnership structure to being a more hierarchical, traditional public company structure. And we were combining two big teams. And so there was all the culture stuff, all the organizational, how, how do you just make a decision? Who has to approve stuff types of questions? There were questions of where are we all going to sit once we combine companies? Is everyone going to be together or not? A day wouldn't go by where we, we didn't have a real-time issue in trying to manage through solving one of these problems. But we have a great team and a deep team, and, and we got through it. We also had to integrate different accounting systems, different uh, health systems, you know, one union contract and another union contract, different payroll systems, all this stuff. For me, the biggest personal challenge was that I had never done this before, any of it. And I had never even worked at a public company, let alone run one. <laughs> I was at Goldman when they were still private, so not even there. And uh, the biggest challenge was trying to, to lead people with confidence and give direction. And you want people to have confidence in their leadership and to believe that their leadership knows what it's doing. But at the same time, when you're doing something brand new that you've never done before, it's not like you can speak from the voice of experience, speak with the voice of experience. And so it was really figuring out who needed to be in the room to solve this problem. Because I myself had never done this exact thing before. And so we hired, a, we, we actually brought on a number of new people. We, we brought on a new chief accounting officer. We brought on a new CFO. We brought on a new chief legal officer, a new head of HR, a new head of marketing. We had new people running our development group, a new chief technology officer, new head of property management. I mean, we, you know, everybody coming to the table to be part of the team solving these issues was basically new. And thankfully, because we always solved for culture fit and real sense of team and, and somebody who's a really great team player, because we always solved for that factor above all others, we ended up really having an almost perfect track record. Not entirely perfect. We did have a, you know, one or two that, that didn't quite work, but almost all of those new people really fit together in a, in a very cohesive and cooperative way 
that enabled us to get through that. Because I had to rely really heavily on that team and their advice and guidance on how, how do we how do we do this? You know, what's the what's the best approach? Because I can't tell you the difference between one accounting system and another, and I need to really rely on the person who has conviction about it, and then works well with the other person who's then from an IT standpoint charged with doing the implementation of it. We don't have do-overs when you're under the clock of meeting public company transaction timelines. And then when you finally do, when the gates do open and you're, and you're out on the, on the racetrack, you, you can't stop and pull over and change the tires. I mean, you have to keep going and be ready. And so that, that was, a, uh, it was a real challenge, that balance between wanting to lead with confidence, but also knowing that everything you're doing is basically uh, something you're doing for the first time. I can understand it. And, uh, you know, having that, that new team to help you is a great thing. It's just interesting that you're very fortunate that you didn't have, you know, disruption in that process. And you had to change more than one tire along the way. It's right. interesting. So philosophically, JBG's heritage was a private entrepreneurial company with a collegial partnership culture. And now it's a public REIT with a completely different long-term strategy, I have to assume more of a smooth running machine than a private equity oriented buy, build, upgrade and sell mentality that the company had in the past. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit further. But first, I'd like to, to learn a little bit more about your personal background, Matt, and where you grew up, what, and a little bit about your family, your parents and, and brother and sisters, and what influences they had on you and your early educational experience as well. So I grew up in the Midwest, in uh, St. Louis. Missouri, and the youngest of three children, I have two older sisters, and my parents were not locals. They, my mom uh, came from Indiana, born in Ohio, raised in Indiana. My dad actually immigrated from Ireland. My dad uh, grew up on a farm in Ireland with no running water, no electricity uh, in the 30s, and ended up uh, going to medical school there and came to the States. Via, and ended up in St. Louis via New York and Chicago, I think progressively seeking out employment in uh, smaller and smaller cities that, that didn't feel too uh, <laughs> dramatically different from rural Ireland, although St. Louis looks nothing like rural Ireland. But I was raised you know, by parents who I think were very much of the view that find something you really want to do and then just go wherever it takes you. I had this idea that I, I, had, I had to go. I had to go somewhere. You know, I couldn't just stay where I was. I had to go somewhere, right? Everyone in my family had gone somewhere, and that's how they ended up there. And so, so when I was looking at colleges, I wanted to go to a college that was as far away as it could be. Not because I, I didn't like where I was coming from, but just because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. So, so that I ended up uh, at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, which was almost as far, you know, at least going to the east, that one could get and stay in the States. What and, led you to Dartmouth, out of curiosity? When I was younger, I, I spent a lot of time uh, outdoors. I, I've, I've always mm -hmm. loved the outdoors and you know, did a lot of camping and hiking and all that kind of stuff. And, and Dartmouth is a very outdoorsy kind of place. You know, the, the, a lot of the students there are drawn to it for mm -hmm. that reason. It's, you know, it's in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it's also a very cold place, which... I didn't fully appreciate until my first winter <laughs> there. I had just sort of a just-in-time system of getting to class. And so I'd, I'd, I'd wake up, take a shower, get on my bike, and halfway riding across the green, you know, the water of my hair would 
refreeze, would freeze <laughs> my eyelashes. My eyes would tear up and I'd get little ice cubes on the edge of my eyelashes, which would then thaw during class and drip onto your note paper. It was really a, a chance to do two things. One, to go somewhere that was very different from where I came from, just geographically and in the country. I didn't know anything about the Northeast. And also to go somewhere that was very much in the outdoors. And uh, I figured I would always probably live my adult life in a city. And so why not take advantage of the time in college to do something different from that and something that I really enjoy. So are you an athlete at all, Matt? Yeah, I've always been an I've always been an okay athlete. I was I wasn't recruited for any sport, put it that way. In high school, I went to one of these high schools where you had to do something every every term. Mm -hmm. You had to do some kind of athletic activity. And I did track and a little bit of soccer and cross country running. You know, I had a high tolerance for pain and so I, you know, (laughs) was one of the things I, I didn't have the best ball handling skills, so that didn't matter, and the high tolerance for pain uh, was actually an asset uh, in a sport like that. And when I when I got to Dartmouth, I played rugby for a little bit, and you know just got got pummeled by all the the bigger, faster people I was playing with, and so that that didn't last too too long. So I didn't play uh, any college level sports outside outside of that. While at Dartmouth, you explored several different fields. It looked like based on what you saw in your resume. You were started with pre-med, then you went to Spanish, and then you went, ended up with history. Is that the right sequence? Uh, Not exactly. So I, I studied Spanish in high school, and I always uh-huh. uh, I enjoyed it. And I figured that if, if I was to maintain any level of fluency, I would have to always take a Spanish class every semester. I figured I'd, I'd need to take a Spanish class every semester. Otherwise, I would I would lose my fluency. And so, so I did that. And that just happened to, you know, qualify for a major. I didn't really intend on being a Spanish major. That wasn't, you know, why I did it. The real focus when I entered school was that I thought I wanted to be a doctor like my dad. My father's a psychoanalyst, still practicing at, at uh, the age of, uh, he'll be 85 this year. And so I thought, you know, when, like, when I was a young kid, I went to a book fair. I rode my bike to a book fair in the parking lot of the nearby shopping mall, and I bought an old copy of Gray's Anatomy because I thought, you know, I should, I should read this now if I want to be a doctor, you know, later. And I did all kinds of other things that pointed in that direction. And I was originally a biology major, and my dad basically talked me out of it because he said, if, if, if you're not called to it, if you don't really love it deep down in your gut, you won't enjoy it and you won't be any good at it. And I think that's true for a lot of things. Now, not everybody's fortunate enough to have a quote-unquote calling, you know, something that kind of calls them anywhere. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it's true that if you don't really like what you're doing, you're not likely to be any good at it. And uh, at first, I resisted this advice and thought, no, 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 this is, you know, I've been focused on this. This is what I'm doing. And then after I let it, you know, sink in, I realized he was right. And, and one of the things he said to me, he said, you know, he said, you can't take me with you. He said, one day I'm, I'm going to be dead and you're going to be left with the choices you've made. And whether you've made them because you think I'll be proud of you or because I influenced you, it, kind of, it won't matter at that point. Again, you know, it was great advice. And he said, you should just do what you study, what you enjoy studying. He's uh, a wise man, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, don't worry about, you know, what job it's going to get you or will this lead to that? Just exercise your mind, study what interests you. 
And so in history, it always, I always read a lot about history and I thought, you know, why don't I, why don't I just study this? Because I do enjoy it. So I switched from biology to history and I ended up then in the history honors program and got a major in history. And also, by the way, Spanish, which was kind of, I was just sort of doing in the background. I made this decision not until I had finished all the pre-med requirements, but pre-med wasn't a major per se. It was, right. you know, 10 courses, you know, physics, chemistry, mm-hmm. organic chemistry, calculus, sure. all, that kind of stuff in biology. Yeah. And I took all those classes, but then decided I wasn't really interested in being a doctor anymore. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I, I sought out my friends who, you know, and some of these were the kids who, you know, they wanted to be an investment banker since they were five, right? And I sought them out and said, you know, what's, what's this business stuff all about? Nobody in my family had ever worked in business. Uh, they'd all been teachers or doctors or, you know, things like that. One thing led to another. And I, you know, I ended up signing up for the interviews on campus when the banks would come and interview. And I ended up getting an offer from Goldman Sachs and, and, you know, and then the rest, you know, the rest is history. So, you know, what attracted you to just because your buddies, you know, just, oh, let's try it out type of thing. And that was kind of it. Or did you no. have an inclination towards uh, some of the disciplines there at all? or? Or not. Um, I knew that I really didn't know all that much through any family experience or connections or network or anything about the quote unquote business world. I found it fascinating and somewhat daunting at the time because uh, there was so much that I felt I didn't know and so much just unfamiliarity to me. In some ways, I was drawn to it because a lot of the people I was close friends with were drawn to it. And I thought, well, if, they, if they're if they very interested in this, I should pay attention to it. And in other ways, I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? I can try this out. If nothing else, I'll learn a lot. And then maybe, maybe something will reveal itself uh, in the world that interests me. And I knew within the first couple of weeks that investment banking was not it. That, <laughs> that, that was not what I wanted <laughs> <laughs> but I also knew that I, I had a lot to learn and, and the job offered a lot in teaching me about, you know, the world of, you know, finance in particular, but also just, you know, how business works, how the economy works, how capital is, is dealt with and managed and raised and invested and everything else in our economy. And in some ways, I liked the challenge of, of really getting totally outside of my comfort zone at the time and trying something completely different and totally new and where I felt like I literally knew nothing. That was in itself stimulating. Uh, What's the Goldman culture like? What was it that you knew after two weeks you weren't going to fit there long term? (laughs) It uh, It wasn't really about the culture of Goldman. It was you know, and maybe this is just a function of having grown up in a Midwestern household where my parents were around a lot. But I remember sitting in a cubicle. I was looking into a, an office and there was a vice president who was occupying that office. And, and the guy, I remember distinctly, uh, he, he was losing his hair because he was going through chemotherapy for cancer treatment. Oh. He had three young kids at home, and I was there all night, right, all the time, because I was was drowning in information, and I I had to learn. I had to figure out how to do this stuff, and so I was, it was taking me, everything was taking me a very long time. This was my second week on the, you know, training program, and this guy was also there until all hours of the night, 
And I just thought to myself, gosh, you know, at the time I thought vice president, that's a really, sounds like a really senior, senior role. I didn't quite realize <laughs> that there were a lot of levels above that still, although I figured it out soon enough. But I just remember thinking, you know, th- this guy has cancer. And, you know, this is 1996 when, mm-hmm. you know, getting cancer then is a little different than it is today. And, uh, and I just thought, wow, this, this guy, this guy could be dead soon. And he may be spending the majority of his final hours here at the office looking at me. That's not the, that's not a, that's not the kind of world I want to live in. It really gave me a pretty strong sense that, you know, this, yeah. this wasn't the lifestyle I wanted. And, you know, it's, look, it, it, uh, it's not as though I haven't been through and experienced and, and still uh, experience times of very hard work and late hours and all that. But the other thing that it, it made me realize was that, you know, in any job where you're, where you're inclined to work hard or where you have to work hard or where you want to work hard, you really better well very much like, if not love, the people next to you that you're doing it with because you're <clears> going to spend a lot of time with them. And, you know, in fairness to this guy, maybe he did, you know, for all I know, I, I didn't know anything about him or, you know, his coworkers. And maybe it was the, you know, maybe he thrived on work in a way that actually kept him going. And was mm-hmm. maybe it saved him for all I know, but at the time it it just made a real impression on me. So you were there for what two three years, and then uh, two years, then on to Thomas Lee Partners. Talk about yeah. that experience. So yeah, Thomas Lee. I worked in a group at Goldman called Leverage Structured Finance, and and we would uh, help companies uh, access the bond markets and the you know highly leveraged uh, loan markets and. Thomas Lee was a leveraged buyout firm, uh, still is, and call them private equity firms today. But and they were a client. And I was finishing the end of a two, the two-year analyst program at Goldman. I, I, I had an opportunity to stay at Goldman and, and move to the M and A group. But I decided I wanted to try something new. I loved living in New York, but I also I felt like New York was uh, it, it's one of these cities where the, the transaction costs of, of daily life are pretty high. And I wanted, a, I wanted a place that was a little bit easier to live in. I was always intrigued by Boston because I'd spent some time there, having gone to Dartmouth, you know, just up the road in New Hampshire. And so, so Thomas Lee was also a real high flyer at the time. Tom was on the cover of Forbes magazine that year, and they were on a real roll. And so it was a great experience, much smaller company. I mean, there were, you know, 25 investment professionals total in the whole firm. I got to work on a, a large number of deals. I got to do all kinds of different industry, invest in all kinds of different industries, financial services, cellular communications, publishing, software, a, a number of different industries that I'd had, had very little exposure to before. So it was a great learning experience. It was kind of a just a continuation of, of the steep learning curve that I had been through at Goldman, really. And then you evolved to co-found an entity called Encoda Systems. Mm-hmm. Talk about that experience. The wife of one of my bosses at Thomas Lee had an idea to basically create a software platform that would sit in between the computer systems that ad agencies and TV stations used to track and traffic and process and run advertising and programming. And the systems that were in place at the time were, you know, 
30, 40 year old software and everything that was happening in the 90s was really trying to create new and adapt old software systems to use you know, graphical user interfaces right. and to be accessible uh, over the internet. Her family had a, had a background in media and she had worked in advertising and she had this, uh, she had this idea. When I was at Thomas Lee, we actually bought a company called Encoda Systems and Encoda Systems had a near monopoly in the industry and in the marketplace for the backend systems that TV stations used for, that, for these various purposes. So I knew a lot about this from my work on that deal. And I knew her because she was married to the guy I was working for. And uh, he was an associate. I was an analyst. And uh, when she had this idea, she said, I need, I, I, you know, I need help with this thing. I need, I need a partner a co-founder basically to help me build this thing and get it off the ground. And so I left Thomas Lee to help her go do that. And one of our exit plans was to build this thing and then hopefully sell it to Encoda. And of course, you know, not realizing that her being married to someone working at Thomas Lee would actually make that more difficult. I of course thought, well, you know, this will be easier because we, everybody knows everybody. And of course, you know, young naivete, not realizing that created all kinds of conflicts that almost got in the way of making a deal like that. But in the end, that's what happened. We, we, we built this software platform, hired a bunch of engineers, ran beta tests in uh, a bunch of ad agencies and TV stations, had a deal with NBC Universal and some of the uh, larger ad firms. And in the end, Encoda bought us for, you know, in a stock for stock transaction that almost didn't happen because of the conflict, but ultimately all of their lawyers got comfortable with it. And it, and it ended up being a, you know, a very good exit for us and for our investors. And uh, after that, I went to, uh, went to business school. What drove you there at the time? You just uh, didn't know what you wanted to do or what? I really, I really didn't know what I wanted to do next. I had, I had worked in, in, in the finance world, I didn't like the fact that, you know, working for these big financial institutions left me feeling very far removed from the actual day-to-day action of making something or doing something. Not that, you know, all the folks that make a living in the financial services world, you know, aren't doing something, but it just felt less tangible. It felt, it felt uh, removed, really, from kind of the, the frontline experience of what it is that, that drives the economy. And, uh, and I wanted to get closer to that. And I didn't really know what industry or how or where. And so I thought business school would be a good way to explore that and try some new things perhaps and meet new people. The job I had at Thomas Lee was, was a two-year analyst job. And the idea was most people, almost everybody who had that job went to business school after the two years. I was the exception because I went and I did this, you know, this startup thing. And, and I did it, by the way, you know, in the summer of 2000, after the dot-com huh, bubble. The tech bubble. So yeah. The bubble burst. And then I went and did this thing. And a lot of people were scratching their heads thinking, you know, like, are you nuts? And in many ways, that's what saved us because we raised a little bit of money to fund our business plan, but it was only a little bit. And it was at a, you know, very unexciting valuation, which, wow. which meant a couple of years later, when it came time to sell the company, we were very affordable. A lot of our competitors that were also candidates to, to be bought by Encoda, and keep in mind, when the monopoly player buys you, 
that means they're not buying any of the others that do the same thing you do. So after they bought us, all the others were out of business within six months. And, you know, there were almost 20 competitors in that space. Wow. And, and it was because they had raised money during the dot-com bubble. And some of them had raised money at, you know, $100 million plus valuations. And their investors weren't going to take a loss. And right. so, you know, because the, the knife hadn't fallen far enough yet. In any case, when I was in business school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. I knew I wanted to do something that was a bit more hands-on. I liked the startup and I liked the fact that it was entrepreneurial and exciting in that way. But I didn't really love the fact that, you know, I'm not a software expert and I felt a bit like a fish out of water all the time. Uh, you know, I was, here I was, you know, t technically I was, you know, kind of the, the CFO of the company, if you will, but I, I was managing a team of people and I really didn't, I didn't really know what, <laughs> what they did. I didn't know how, you know, if a software developer had a question for me about, you know, which database platform we ought to be using, I, I couldn't answer that question. And so I wanted to do something where I could add more value directly. And while I was at HBS, I met a guy named Bill Porvu, who wrote a book called The Real Estate Game and who was a longtime JBG investor. He was one of the founders of the Baupost Group. He was on the Yale Investment Committee. Just a, a really uh, smart, talented, great guy, just sort of, you know, kind of one of these towering intellect types who uh, I sought out because I had read his book and, I th and, and there were some people in his book that I knew. And so, you know, we played the name game and got to know each other. And he, he steered me in the direction of JBG. And when I joined the firm, when, when I was coming out of HBS, you know, I, I had, it was 2004. And so the real mm -hmm. estate market was on fire and everybody had lots of job offers. And uh, I turned down other offers that some of my classmates thought I was crazy, but JBG paid me the least amount of money. There was no promise of equity right up front. And it was in a city that many of my classmates scratched their head and wondered, why are you going to Washington? You know, <laughs> we're all going to New York or London or, you know. Yep. And it was really the people of the firm that drew me to it. Something about them, you know, Rob Stewart, Brian Coulter, Ben Jacobs, Mike Glosserman, they, they, Porter Dawson, there was something about them really made me feel that they were, they were genuine and what you see is what you get. And they were very matter, matter of fact, they weren't trying to oversell me, but they were very transparent and open book about what the potential career path might be. And, you know, I came back to advice I had gotten from my father when I was younger, which was, you know, again, some people pursue the shiny title, some people pursue, you know, the, the most immediate compensation. Some people pursue, you know, the sexiest industry or city. He said, look, you can spend a lot of your life with these people. Just solve for the people first mm -hmm. and the rest of it will take care of itself. Again, great and, advice. Uh, and, and that, you know, really served me well because that's what I did. And yep. it was actually the only job I had ever taken where what was represented to me when I was a, a, a prospect, a, a recruit, actually turned out to be true once I was in the door. And that was a testament, I think, just to the character of the people that, that mentored me, who hired me, trained me, mentored me, uh, and who became my partners later. So talk about the trajectory uh, with Rob, Ben, Mike, and Brian, and et, et cetera, the folks there. I, when I, uh, I'll just relay a story to the listeners. In 2005, Rob Stewart 
and I had breakfast and he said, you know, we just hired two guys that I want you to meet sometime. They're they going to be the future of the company. I said, oh, so who are they? He said, uh, James Iker and Matt Kelly. So you need to come and meet them. So I remember one morning we, we all met at Panera Bread. It was all four of us and Brian Coulter comes up to me and says, John, you got, you got the talent here today. How did you do this? And I said, well, it helps when you bring a billion and a half dollar deal to the table. <laughs> so we were, as you may recall, we were looking at USPTO at the time. And uh, I didn't make that deal, but Rob wanted to make sure that the smartest minds in the company were there. So you guys were there. He had a spreadsheet. I remember sitting there and talking about it uh, right there at, in a public place. but. It was interesting. So talk about the trajectory. I mean, you know, what did Rob and Ben and Mike do for you that kind of gave you inspiration going forward? Well, I think that experience you just relayed in an indirect way kind of answers the question to a degree, which is that if you think about it, you know, I I had only been at the firm maybe not even a year when I met you and had that conversation. And one of the things that Rob and Mike and Brian and, and Ben and, and really the whole team were very good at doing is giving younger people a lot of responsibility and room to run. Not, though, without some guidance and mentorship, but room to run nonetheless. And, you know, I had worked in places where things were very hierarchical and junior people weren't invited to this meeting or that meeting or you weren't allowed to be in the room or. You might have been the most knowledgeable one about the model, but you weren't the one presenting it. Your boss was. And, you know, that really deprives people of an opportunity to show what they can do and also to learn. It also deprives more senior people of an opportunity to lay off a bunch of the work. And, you know, and I think Rob and, and Mike and, you know, the whole team, they were very smart about that. They knew that if you share the pie, you will increase the pie as long as, you know, you're sharing it you know, with folks that can handle the work, which, you know, in, in my case, the case of James and, and, and Kai and the, the whole rest of the team, that was true. We, we were able to take it on and do it. And we wanted that, you know, we were, we were hungry for it. And in many companies, if you don't do things like that, the people that really hunger for that kind of learning and experience will leave and they'll go somewhere else where they can. Our mentors were smart in realizing that as well. They knew that, you know, on the, on the one hand, this is a good move from a value creation standpoint. We will increase our capability as a company. We'll be able to grow faster and we'll create more value as a result. On the other hand, it's also a very good and necessary retention tool. If you don't do things like that, your best people aren't going to stay. They're not going to stay in the same spot, you know, for five or 10 years without advancement or opportunity. It was really, I think, a, a, very, it was a very powerful learning experience for me. And the other thing they, they did to their credit was a lot of firms face this issue where you have aging founders who won't move on, won't retire, won't share with the next generation. And that whole team of folks that, that hired me and hired James and Kai and others were, I think, real leaders in that area and really modeled, I think, the best, the best kind of behavior because they did not hoard the responsibility control, you know, the economics of the business, they, sh- they shared it. And in doing so, they really allowed us to grow in a way that I think many just can't, can't do unless you're willing to let go of the reins a little bit. And 
not be a bottleneck. It's interesting. You know, I've been to wa- in Washington since 1985, and I met uh, Rob pretty early on in my tenure here. And I got the sense that he was the second, more or less the second generation of the company because Ben and his partners founded it back in the 1960s, early, which, you know, how, how easy is it to sustain a non-family-oriented company that long a period of time through transition? And so now you're at least in the third generation now, arguably fourth, potentially, but third, certainly. It has to be a testimony. There must be some secret sauce that JBG had. Maybe it's just the partnership feeling and collegiality that kept it going so long and being able to thrive and go through so many changes. I mean, the merger with Trizic Khan, I remember, was a major change. And then the company shrunk down to maybe five or six people after that. And then it grew back when Rob started the fund business. That's when things really exploded for the company was the first funds and getting under the fund business and expanding from there. So I'm also going to ask you about the fund business a little bit before we get into uh, a little more details about today, how that evolved, the relationship with David Swenson at, uh, at Yale University, which I think was a big boon for the company at the time. So talk a little bit about how that happened, if you, if you know. It was before you were there, but... It did predate me by a few years, and the, the relationship originally started actually with a woman named Ellen Schumann, who Mike and a few other members of the team had gotten to know in the 90s. And Ellen hired a a man named Alan Foreman, who is still at Yale, is on our board now. Alan runs real assets at Yale for David. He's one of the top, you know, top three people there and has spent most of his career at Yale. And, you know, the relationship had a lot to do with certainly the dynamic and the sort of the, you know, what what I'll call the personality fit. Yale loves to find it with, you know, new opportunities, emerging managers where they can invest a lot of capital and have a very large stake and do it with managers that are small and growing and really kind of ride that growth. And as often happens, you know, eventually a lot of times those managers get so big that, you know, Yale's, Yale's large checks are no longer as large in the, in the scale and context of the size of what those managers become. And that is what happened with us. Rewinding, you know, JBG raised two small co-investment funds. And then it was the third fund that Yale became the very large institutional LP in that fund. And I think they wrote a check for $150 million to be part of that $210 million fund. It was fund four uh, when I joined the firm in 2004. And so Yale had, had been there already. Yale was just committed to the second fund now with JBG when I came along. And I think it actually was one of the things that made it, I think, a lot easier for me to open the door at JBG was because my introduction came from a guy who was on Yale's investment committee, Bill Porgo. And so Yale was a big part of JBG's life at the time and still is, quite honestly. Uh, David Swenson was always very available to us and very thoughtful, wise sounding board from a strategy standpoint and really encouraged us just to do what we thought was right. They were in many ways very hands-off, but in other ways very plugged in and tuned into what we were doing. And they they could not have been better partners. And I think one of the things that they always valued and really emphasized was the importance of alignment of interests Mm -hmm being on the same page 
and not having misalignment between partners and just operating with a fundamental sense of fairness, which again, if you think about the DNA of the firm and the group and the team internally at the company, that's very much what it was all about. And that's one of the reasons why I think we've had you know, a better experience maybe than some in attracting and retaining really good people is that we are pretty transparent and honest and fair and all of that. With our own employees, I'd also like to think with our external partners, with our investors. And I think people see that and they place a premium value on it as, a, as something they want to be part of. And I, I think that was true for Yale. And Yale, of course, as you know, a lot of other endowments and foundations, they all do their own work, but they also pay close attention to what Yale's doing. And it really helped us attract a lot of others into the mix, which we did over the years. We, we grew our investor base to include many, many of those foundations, you know, Harvard and Princeton and Dartmouth and the Carnegie Foundation and the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and the Hilton mm-hmm. and Packard Foundations. And so we, we had a lot, but while we were still private fund manager, a lot of what I think are honestly some of the best investment partners you can ever find. I think I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, go right to your operations a little bit in the company. Talk a little bit about uh, the largest deal, perhaps in the history of Washington, D.C. real estate. <laughs> and that's the Amazon HQ2 transaction, which is just in the early stages of probably a 20-year process, I'm guessing, or close to it, based on development plans. So landmark opportunity. I'll recall a day that I, literally the day it was, it was announced international or nationally, I texted Rob. And I said, Rob, so what do you think? Are you going to, you going to, he said, John, we're all in. And I said, and it turned out he sure was. And so were you guys, you guys just crushed it. And I just knew in my gut that Crystal City was an ideal location for that, even before they, they even knew about Crystal City. Yeah. So it just felt right. And it had a lot of elements to it that just, I, he and I were on the same page. I said, I agree with you. I think go for it. So it's, it's exciting. What was the biggest uh, challenge you faced in securing that Amazon deal? Clearly, it's, it has changed the entire focus of your company since, since that win and a testimony to the team in the massive pivot of the company's direction. Tell me about that. You know, I think there's a, a belief that because of Amazon, we, we changed the direction of our plans. And if you rewind, you know, our and you look at the materials, for example, that we we put out in the public domain when the company was launched in 2017, the actual plan as far as what we intend to do in National Landing with new ground-up development projects, repositioning street retail, reimagining a lot of the public spaces, and even our wish list of infrastructure projects that we would like to, you know, have for, for public investment. The actual plan hasn't changed all that dramatically with the one exception of the Amazon land. If you rewind pre-Amazon, the land that we're selling to Amazon actually was very much a a kind of a distant future phase. And and our primary Mm -hmm. focus was on that main street crystal drive in, in in the heart of the neighborhood. The biggest impact of winning Amazon is really that it just accelerated everything. It allows us to speed everything up in a way that you otherwise, you know, might be uncomfortable doing because you, you're not sure whether the demand is, is going to be there. Would you go and build 2,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 apartments quickly 
in a normal demand environment, probably not. You'd worry too much about how long it would take to stabilize that. But when you have an employer bringing to a neighborhood 30 to 50,000 new employees, and if you think about the size of that submarket today, today in, in the aggregate, there are 50,000 people who show up to work there every day. So Amazon will potentially increase that by 50 to 100%. And the idea of building a lot of housing with that demand driver all of a sudden becomes much more obvious as to the fact that uh, you really can't do it fast enough. That's really the biggest thing. And Amazon also brings with it a tremendous number of tax dollars that have now been earmarked to fund a lot of these infrastructure projects that at the time, you know, pre-Amazon, we thought were kind of, you know, pie in the sky, you know, let's see what we can make happen here, but really very low expectations. And now a lot of these things are happening, you know, and the new VRE commuter rail station, the pedestrian walkway to Reagan Airport, the new metro entrance on Crystal Drive, which which we have actually been hired to oversee the construction of to, to hopefully make it go faster, the lowering of Route 1 down to grade level. That's one of these projects that, that we thought was very important. And uh, when we shared it with the Amazon team, they, they agreed. They said, wow, that'll, that will really make a difference here and make it a much more walkable place. We love that idea too. They actually put that one on the table with the Commonwealth and said, this is really going to make this neighborhood much more livable and walkable and not really have much of an impact on traffic anyway, because you have lots of stoplights there today anyway. It was that influence that allowed a lot of these projects to really kind of get off the ground. And so it's accelerating things more than anything else. I think from an investor perspective, it was hugely impactful because it, it validated our plan in a lot of ways. I think a lot of investors looked at us and thought, okay, they're the real deal. They know how to do this. And they looked at Crystal City, which we now call National Landing, and they thought, you know, if anybody could do it here, it's probably this group, but this is a big undertaking. And, you know, sometimes these things succeed and they work out great, and sometimes they don't. And so I think a lot of investors were kind of like, you know, with the skeptical sort of, you know, view of it, uh, thinking probably, but maybe I'll wait and maybe I'll just wait and see. Amazon, I think, gave it a real stamp of validation and approval and I think made a lot of people believe, okay, this really is, it's the right plan because it, it was a plan that helped attract Amazon and it is now not only much more likely to happen, but much more necessary in order to really fill out the repositioning of the, of the whole neighborhood. Matt, what was the biggest challenge of securing that deal for you personally? It's a great question. By nature, I'm not a patient person, <laughs> and uh, it really did. It's not because Amazon wasn't easy to deal with. In fact, the, the team we worked with was terrific. We really enjoyed, you know, and we still, we work with them all the time now. You know, we're real partners in this whole thing, and, you know, we've become personal friends with them, and, it, you know, they were, they were delightful people to deal with. You know, this was a massive undertaking, and... It honestly didn't take any longer than any other big lease decision. In fact, it, sure. you know, relative to the size of it, it was probably on the faster end, given how big it was. We've worked on 200,000 square foot leases that have taken longer, you know, mm -hmm. and this is 4 million feet. And so it, it was just the combination of, of how big this decision was and the fact that a decision seemed imminent for months. And 
yeah. living through months where every day could be the day you yeah. get a phone call. Yeah. Someone said, you know, that's just nerve wracking. And, you know, you don't sleep and nobody on your team, you know, we nicknamed our right. office speculation station because we, <laughs> you know, we, we wondered everything we were hearing from the team we talked to sounded positive. And it seemed like it was going in a good direction. But, but of course, nobody ever said until literally the day before it was announced, nobody said, uh, yeah, you guys are going to win. It's coming to D.C., to Northern Virginia. Nobody said that. But everything else they said certainly looked and felt like they were, we were working on plans for where people would park their cars in the garages underneath the buildings where we were negotiating leases. Okay, why would you focus on that if you weren't serious? But uh, we also knew that it's a big company and ultimately it's one person's decision and they are not conventional and they do things differently uh, all the time. And so it could very well have been the case that, you know, we were going to be uh, left at the altar. And the one thing actually that I think really did give us confidence was the fact that we were very much integrated with the Virginia Economic Development Team, and they were hearing all the same things that we were. We thought, in our cynical mind, okay, that the people we were dealing with were very forthright and straightforward. And it didn't make sense to us that somehow we weren't going to win based on, you know, we're dealing with good people, and they're telling us, they're telling us things that would indicate that they want to come here. But we were just paranoid that, you know, maybe they're not the ones making the decision. Maybe somebody else is going to overrule them and they'll be as surprised as we are. I mean, we went through 20 different what if scenarios of how this could end up not coming our way. Yeah. And that drove everybody nuts. And so trying to keep people focused, trying to remind them, I would come in every couple of days and I would say, listen, guys, we're going to lose. Okay. And our business is still going to be terrific. Okay. We don't need this. It'll be amazing if we win and I want to win it more than anybody else, but we're going to lose just plan for losing. And then anything else is upside. And of course, everybody said, yeah, 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 you're right. And then of course, nobody did it. Everybody thought, no, 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 we're going to win. <laughs> we have to win. What if we don't win? And so, you know, I tried as best I could to keep people keep people yeah. grounded, to, to manage expectations. Even with outside investors, it became very hard to manage expectations. You know, everybody would hear some rumor and they'd say, oh, I know a friend who works at the Wall Street Journal in New York who knows a guy yeah, at Amazon sure, and said, sure. you're going to win. All this stuff. So, so it just became kind of crazy. And, and managing that chaos and frenzy of rumors and speculation while also doing our day job was yeah. really challenging. The opportunity cost of what you dealt with had to have been a huge, huge decision because really the entire company was put on hold to some extent yeah. as a result of this. So yeah. you could have been, you know, had to lose a year basically of your business operations for any new business. You had to put on hold. We had a number of we had a number of leases that were in process in space that Amazon could have taken or wanted to take. And we had to negotiate. We had to come to people midstream and say, Hey, we, you know, we need the right to 
you know, call this off at the last minute. And, and we, we tried to be as upfront with people as we could be. Some people said, totally get it. Uh, we know, we know this is for Amazon. We know you can't tell us that we hope you win. It'd be great for the region. You know, you know, we're all in it together. Some people were a little more self-interested and, and not as, not as charitable in their view of, of taking that approach, which is fine. You know, they're looking out for their business. And in the end, if we had not, if we had not succeeded in, in, in attracting Amazon, I think we had put at risk, you know, maybe 10 or $15 million of income, of annual income, if, if the tenants that we had had discussions sure. with decided to go elsewhere. Now, yeah. thankfully, they didn't. But each time we were making that decision about, yep. because the decision was always, do we pick up the phone and call the broker or the tenant and say, hey, I, I just, I want to level with you here. We're chasing something big. I can't tell you who it is, but if you've read the paper in the last six months, <laughs> we need flexibility. And you're standing in the way of that flexibility right now. And I hate to, I hate to ask this to you because I know it makes it seem like, you know, you're not my, my favorite tenant. But in fact, in this moment, we do have to prioritize. And we would offer people, we'd say, we'll find you equivalent space. We'll pay for your costs. We'll pay for this or that. We'll, we'll cover it. We'll make, we'll make you whole. And a lot of people said, you know, appreciate you being straightforward. Uh, especially the brokers. A lot of the brokers said, you know, I'm just, I, I, I thank you for not making me look like a fool or surprised sure. and having my client read about something in the paper and then call yelling at me. I think in the end we did the right thing, but there was a risk. People would say, you know what? I don't want to be caught up in this. Yeah. I, I need certainty. I'm going to go where I don't have to deal with this. So my, my neighbor works for PBS. And so she was one of the, and she's a general uh, assistant general counsel for them. Yeah. So she was in the midst of exactly what you were just talking about there. Well, and, you know, PBS <laughs> was in an interest because PBS is partners with Amazon on the, uh-huh. on the studio side of the right. business. And the PBS folks, you know, they were an early adopter in the neighborhood. They've been there mm-hmm. for a long time. And, yep. and so, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was to have PBS feel like, no. You know, I was the early adopter and yet, and somehow I'm not, you know, you're, but, but they were, they were one of the ones who said, you know what, we, we get it. We understand what you're trying to do. You know, we don't like changing our plans, but we understand what you're trying to do. And we think it's a, we think it's the, the right decision. It's a great cause. And, you know, and we made it worth their while to move and they're in the same neighborhood. They're just in different mm-hmm. space. And you know what? Amazon is now leasing that building that they're leaving. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we needed that to happen to accommodate, to accommodate Mm -hmm. all that growth and all those jobs. And in the end, it'll be good for everybody because now we'll have that many more people in the neighborhood patronizing the retail, making the retail thrive and succeed, Mm -hmm. which will make the place better for all the tenants that are there, PBS included. Matt, let's uh, shift for a minute to uh, the current pandemic and the impact on the company as well, comparing it to the global financial crisis in 2008, which was, you know, for most people viewpoint, a financial crisis as opposed to, you know, a, <laughs> a crisis that affects every human being on the planet. How do you see it differing in the real estate sector from, for your company's perspective? It's different in, in a lot of ways. For starters, real estate came into this crisis less levered 
than it was. And so, and, and real estate is not the root cause of the issue. And maybe you could say, well, that was single family versus commercial, but commercial was levered to the hilt too. And so real estate is coming into this better prepared to weather a storm. All the lenders to real estate are coming into it better prepared to weather a storm. So it's not like credit is going to be our problem. And in fact, in some ways, credit, you know, we, we may end up having too much credit if you just look at what the Fed is doing, which, which in the end should uh, accrue to the benefit of the owners of hard assets. If the cost of money is so cheap that, you know, any financial return is viewed so attractively that it drives up the price, then we should see the price of hard assets increase. And um, that should apply to real estate. We haven't seen it yet. In fact, I think if anything, office values are down. That's driven by two things. One, even though there's lots of credit out there, there is not, in fact, lots of credit for office buildings right now. Banks are still very stingy, as you know, on office buildings. And people are worried about how does this change the fundamentals of office supply and demand? Not so much supply, but just demand. What's going to happen with office demand? If, if everybody's, you know, working out of their kitchen, then do they need the office building anymore? And, I, you know, I, we, we, we had a, a meeting at our, at our office last week of our executive committee. And, and I asked, I said, how many days a week are each of you going to want to work from home after things return to normal? And there's six of us in the group. The five others, you know, who answered that question all said they want to work from home zero days during the week. I was surprised. I actually thought somebody would say maybe one day or, you know, even a half day or something. People miss the office. And, and by the way, this is not a group of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, old school, you know, you got to be in the office to get anything done. Uh, it's really just practical. It's like, I'm, I'm in the right headspace when I'm in the office, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not distracted by all the things in my house. And only half of the the group have kids at home. The other half, their kids are grown. And so I think people miss each other. They miss camaraderie. They miss all. So I, I think a lot of the gloom and doom about office fundamentals is potentially overblown, but I think it's going to be a while before we really understand it well enough that people are comfortable in how they underwrite it, which means mm -hmm. you're going to have a bid-ask spread where the yeah. pessimists are going to be conservative and they're going to want the 20% discount and the realists will be in the middle and the optimists will be higher and they'll say, well, I'm only going to give you a 5% off yesterday's price and you're going to have this wide bid-ask spread and nothing will trade and they can't get it financed anyway. So, And multifamily, I think, will be uh, the opposite. I think multifamily pricing will become more aggressive. They've opened the spigot of agency lending and so you know that's some of the most attractive bid out there. And I think people realize... Folks are coming back to the cities eventually, and when they do, there's not going to be enough housing for them, and the price of housing is going to keep going up and up and up. And I think that's, you know, and, and, and retail will recover and repair. It'll go through probably a big, you know, churn of businesses that fail and that replace those that fail. But and when, when I say retail, I mean urban street retail, like restaurants, bars, amenities, things like that. You know, the strip center mall retail, I think, is it's been a no, in a nosedive uh, for a long time. And that's only, you know, the pitch, you know, the nosedive was maybe a gradual descent. And now it's kind of pitched down a little more. But in those respects, that, that's how I see this crisis differently. 
Just like the last one, though, I think it's going to be a very long time before the effects of this one are mm-hmm. no longer felt. I think it's going to, you know, this whole talk of a V or W, you know, or a K. I mean, everyone's trying to find a, you know, maybe it's an S. It, I think it's going to take many, many years before, you know, we are dug out of this. We, we have not seen the end of all the layoffs. And, no. you know, in the end, we're a, a, an economy that's driven 70% by consumer spending. If you fire people from their jobs, they, they spend less. And so how does that not impact GDP growth? It has to, and it, and it hasn't happened. You know, we're, we're, we're catching plates right before they hit the floor with each one of these industries, you know, whether it be, you know, supplemental unemployment or some kind of a bailout or, you know, airline bailout, you know. Well, you did pivot away from hospitality a few years ago. You know, I think it only in, I think in the last two or three years, I think you've pretty much disposed all of your hospitality assets, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I assume you're breathing, breathing a sigh of relief there, I imagine. And uh, wondering, I wonder what about that part of the industry, if it'll ever come back to the point where it was at one point here recently. I think it's possible that it could. The issue with the hospitality industry, I think, has always been that the laws of supply and demand and replacement cost economics don't really apply. <laughs> because many, many times hotels get built when there's already too much supply. And the reason is because you get key money from, from flags that will pay you open a hotel yep. so they can collect management fees. And they can make money even if occupancies are low. So they don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not aligned with the owner in that regard. And local jurisdictions will pay money to people to build hotels because they get, they capture very high taxes off of these things. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, the Amazon incentive package in Arlington is funded by hotel taxes and because that's a deep reservoir of, of income for these folks. And so, whereas normally you would say, look, in order to make money on this, on this piece of land, I've got to generate a certain level of income, assuming my land is priced at market value. If building an apartment building comes with no subsidies and, and no monetary grant, but building a hotel comes with key money from uh, Hilton or Marriott, comes with a subsidy from the county I'm in, all of a sudden, I can actually make money even if my land value is zero or even mm-hmm. if my land value is negative. Yeah. So why wouldn't I build that hotel? Let's go do it. And so that's what happens. And you end up with hotel after hotel after hotel. There's too much supply, not enough demand to fill it. Times like this just exacerbate that. Even when demand returns to normal, it's still a business that from a landowner, asset owner's perspective, is very challenging. And right. we, you know, we, we were continually frustrated by that reality and we decided, you know what, it's just, also you do need to have scale. If you don't have scale, you won't get the attention of the operator. And if you don't have the operator's attention, you're not aligned. And if you're not aligned, they're gonna make money when you're not. And yep. that's, you know, that's just not a good business to be in from our perspective. Yep. I want to go through some, uh, some of your recent quarterly letter questions here. I'm going to shift gears from that. Rent collections are relatively high in office and, and in residential, uh, considerably down in retail. Will you be pivoting your retail strategy to meet uh, this shortfall of the, other than, say, forbearance with tenants today? The short answer is no, not really. Our retail strategy in its current form is really focused on retail as an amenity 
for the other uses. And I say amenity to mean not just entertainment, but also services. So you right. know, grocery stores and drug stores sure. and dry cleaners are part of that. But a lot of people think about the placemaking, urban infill yes. type of retail that we do as being you know, very food and beverage heavy, which it is. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of all those things. It's the, it's the amenities and the services. And mm-hmm. right now is a terrible time for that market because if you think about all the things you don't want in a pandemic, it's an indoor you know, bar in a high-density urban environment. I'm not sure what would be worse than that. So it's tough going. And you're right. Not many of them can pay rent or can pay much rent now. And we just have to to work through the other side of this pandemic. It's going to be better in the long run to work with those types of tenants so that they can succeed and not fail. Because that's better. It's better for everybody. Financially, it's also just better for the city in terms of the you know vibrance and activity. But you know, our our strategy there is not changing. You know, the timing of some things is certainly going to be delayed. Uh, you know, if you mm-hmm. thought you were going to open a new restaurant this year, you're probably pushing that off until a time when you have more visibility, and more certainty. You know, the other parts of our strategy really also have not changed all that much. We, we started life as a public company with a lot more office than we have now. We had a lot of downtown DC office and we were concerned about supply demand dynamics in that sector. Mm-hmm. And so we sold a lot of those assets, thankfully. It proves to have been good timing when you look in the rearview mirror. But we still have more to do. And, you know, we will continue our migration out of office into multifamily. We, we won't exit the office business completely. But one day, you know, we will shift the mix. And it's largely going to be driven by transactions and selling office buildings, acquiring apartment buildings, building new apartment buildings, a lot of which will be in and around the growth tailwinds of Amazon's HQ2. If you just step back and say, well, what is this company now? This company is, is roughly, two-thir- roughly two-thirds of the company is in National Landing, you know, plus or minus a half mile from Amazon's headquarters. And yeah. Amazon is only hiring faster during the pandemic, during yeah. the downturn, only growing faster. Sure. And about two-thirds of our future development pipeline, call it seven or eight million feet, is multifamily in and around that national landing neighborhood. And mm-hmm. you know, Amazonians love to walk and bike to work and uh, they're well paid by Amazon. And so it, it makes for a great dynamic when you think about delivering new housing in a market. And so those elements of the strategy really are unchanged. And if anything, the outlook for that we believe is stronger now because of uh, Amazon's posture coming through uh, this, this whole downturn. I was just going to ask you, I mean, they are now one third of the entire online retail marketplace and growing. Being in Washington is an interesting place because (laughs) there are a lot of attorneys here that are in the antitrust business that I've got to be looking at that pretty carefully. So I would think there's going to be an issue someday, maybe. And I chucklingly ask, uh, will they end up acquiring you (laughs) because of their growth? I mean, you know, they may want to control their future themselves to some extent, but hopefully you'll add enough service to stay independent from them (laughs) over time. Mixed use urban real estate is not really their core business, as we all know. So they do like to own uh, some of their real estate. Uh, They don't own all of it. You know, they are going to own the buildings that we are building for them. They're leasing some and owning more. From our perspective, whatever avenue ultimately creates the most value is going to be the avenue that we're going to travel. 
you know, we're very value-oriented, we're very long-term oriented also. Any path that achieves those objectives, in our mm-hmm. view, is the right one, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to stay independent or, you know, even necessarily keep owning all the things that we own. There are a lot of different ways to get there. And as you sure. know, you know, if, if anything, we thrive on change yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're pretty flexible and we like to think yeah, of absolutely. ourselves as being, you know, creative at, at, you know, finding new and interesting ways of kind of getting to where we want to go. Yeah. So Matt, um, of course, there's been a lot of discussion in addition to the pandemic uh, about ESG as broadly speaking. Your culture seems to have been inclusive with women and minorities, at least in my experience, with people that you've been very proactive in hiring. And it seems like uh, most of the employees that I've met from JBG are intelligent, collegial, and that's reflected by Washington Business Journal's top workplace award. So congratulations there. Your advocacy through the Washington Housing Initiative, led by A.J. Jackson, who's a friend of mine and a good guy, is another quality contribution to the, to the, to the situation. And you now have a diversity and an inclusion initiative. Any interesting strategies to share about how JVG Smith will make a difference, both with employers, vendors, and tenants in this realm? You know, it's interesting. All, all of this, all these themes get lumped into, you know, three letters. And it, 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 they really cover a lot if you really step back and mm-hmm. think about, you know, what, sure. what do all of these things really mean and how do, you, how do you do a good job at each of them? On the, you know, on the equity, diversity, and inclusion front, it has to be an all-hands effort. It has to be sponsored by the folks at the top. And you have to, you have to be willing to confront the fact that if, if you want to be inclusive, that means it has to show up everywhere. It can't just be, you know, well, we're inclusive with our, our hiring, but not our promoting. Or we're inclusive with our, our junior people, but not our senior people. And I do think we've done a good job so far, but, I, but we, have, we still have a lot of work to do because our, you know, our team does not reflect what I like. I, I like to put it in these terms where I, I think it, it should reflect the labor force as a whole. And as between each of the different areas, you know, if you look at gender, ethnicity, you know, socioeconomic background, we're not as inclusive as I would like for us to be. And it does take time. You know, you, especially a company like ours, where we like to we like to grow from within. You know, we don't we don't really love hiring senior people from the outside because, as you pointed out, we do have a very strong culture, and we like people to kind of learn that way of doing business from within. And so it means we have to start. You can't. St- it's never too late to start, but you do have to start now, and you have to plan years in advance. And we've been doing that, but to me, success is. When you fast forward and you see a senior team and a mid-level team and a junior team that all achieve that goal of really reflecting the society from which we draw all the talent that we need mm-hmm. to run our business. And you know, real estate, I think, is challenged in many ways because it is, it's, very, it's a very uh, relationship-driven business. I, I know very many businesses are, mm-hmm. and this applies probably everywhere, that you have strong relationships. People... People are comfortable with what they know, and what they know usually looks a lot like themselves. And so, if you you know if if you are in a position of of hiring or um, you know uh, hiring vendors or contractors, it it is hard. It, it it you you need to be I think educated on how 
to overcome some of those those natural tendencies. You know, I'm I'm comfortable with with this vendor, or I'm comfortable with this this new recruit because you know they're from my hometown. They went to my high school. You know, we we know all these people in common. It's and and it's natural. And there's you know there's nothing there's nothing bad about that, but there is a lot just from a it, it, to 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 favor going in this direction for reasons of fairness and equity is i think a good enough reason but if that's not convincing the economic reasons are also compelling which is that you know companies that do these things tend to have better performance mm-hmm. they be, and and it makes sense because when you take when you take all your biases out of the equation you really are opening up the funnel that you use to draw people in. And if you really are solving for, for skill and competence and everything else without regard for, you know, your biases, you're likely going to end up with a more effective team in the end and a more effective company and a company that makes people feel more included and therefore happier in their work who are then going to work harder and do better. And you see it in the numbers, you know, public companies, companies where there's lots of disclosure, you can see, you know, how, how much they're able to grow their revenues and their income and their market values. And, you know, those that have diverse boards and diverse teams. And so this stuff really does, it does pay off and it's also the right thing to do. And so we've had that lens through which we've viewed this for a very long time. It's one of the reasons why we've been on record saying our plan is to have our, our board of trustees reflect the labor force as a whole. You know, we're working towards that. We've had a, you know, couple people turn over in the last few years on our board and we've we've brought in more women we're working on you know making it a more diverse group as well and so it takes time and you have you really do have to invest the energy in making it happen it just it doesn't just kind of happen by itself you can't put just put a policy in place and then expect everyone to read it and follow it you have to be proactive and you have to kind of bring them along and communicate about what you plan to do and how you plan to do it you think that you the recent events have made you more, more and more conscious of it. But as I said, in my experience with JBG, the JBG side, not the Bernardo Smith side, is that you've been conscious of it for a long time, and you look primarily for intelligence and collegiality. Is seemed to me the lens that you were really looking forward, despite the background of somebody. Has it changed at all because of what's happened recently? I mean, just because of the public scrutiny that you're under as a public company, that you've got to be very conscious and communicate that? Is that part of it? I don't think being a public company has really changed it for us. I do think mm-hmm. the the awareness that the Black Lives Matter movement has gotten recently, right. I think what it what that has done is, I think it has brought all of this discussion more into more into the workplace Mm-hmm. where, you know, I think a lot of people felt uncomfortable talking about this stuff. And so they just didn't talk about it very much, or at least they didn't talk about it with each other. And I've mm-hmm. had lots of members of our team who are African-American reach out to me and share their stories about having to, you know, have the talk with their young son about how mm-hmm. to engage with, with police officers or, you know, how to not startle, you know, a white woman in certain settings, things like that. And that's very eye-opening stuff, honestly, for someone who personally never had to deal with that. And that's the kind of stuff that 
it's not eye-opening, you know, if you're African-American, you know, that's, you know, that's something that, you know, when that topic comes up, everybody's kind of nodding their head like, yep, yep, I've had that conversation. Oh, yeah, I had that talk. And I think a lot of the white people in the room are, some, some of them are hearing it for the first time. And so I actually think it has raised awareness in very positive ways. And my hope is that it's not sort of a, you know, a high profile you know, topic or movement at the moment that then fades away, you know, and it, it does take effort and energy to maintain the prominence of the important subject matter. But it, that, that's really necessary, I think, for people to actually fully understand it and really get it and say, okay, you know what, gosh, I really didn't realize the fact that we don't talk about it enough is in many ways invalidating of it. And just by talking about it, we validate that it's real and that it needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, talk is just talk, but, but it can be very powerful. That has been a change. And I think a lot more people have, have more awareness of it, which is half the battle. And the other half is obviously taking action on that awareness. What person or people have stood out to you as inspirations and why, Matt? When I think about the people in, in my there's sort of two categories, right? There's, they're, the, they're the people that I, I have never met and will never meet, you know, but you read about and they inspire you through what they did. And one of them that I know a lot of people are probably aware of is Ernest Shackleton, who led an expedition to Antarctica and everything went wrong. And it was an, an abysmal failure and a disaster. And, and, uh, and yet he managed to lead his men out of that chaos and out of a disaster into what was a, you know, a triumph of really not, not losing anyone in his expedition. And it, it, it took them, I think, over a year. I won't bore you with all the details of it. They're not boring, but uh, there are a lot of them. And it, it was inspiring to me. What I'm always inspired by is people who can lead through failure, people who, are, who face just incredibly daunting failures and yet somehow still rise to the challenge. You know, in my personal life, the mentors who hired me, you know, Rob Stewart, Mike Glosserman, you know, they were very generous people and they uh, were generous with their, their time and with their ownership and other things and, and giving of responsibility. And uh, I was always inspired by how you can actually grow your business and create a lot more value by giving it away to your partners and by sharing it. And by sharing it, you know, you could have half of something small or you could have a tenth of something far bigger and your tenth could be bigger than that half. And right. uh, it's not intuitive to a lot of people, but it was to them. And they really taught me that. And I think it's been a big part of how we, how we run our business. seems like the power of leverage to me. And that goes, you know, in many different ways. Yes. It's interesting. I think we have to wrap up here, but I want to ask you uh, one more thing if I can. Sure. Talking about your life priorities a little bit. You know, as far as you have four children at home, tell me, as you look back at your career so far, what are the biggest wins and losses and most surprising events in your career, would you say, Matt, to date? The biggest win, hands down, is the Amazon deal that you talked about. I mean, that there's never been anything uh, that I've been involved in that had so many eyes on it and so many people with an opinion or with advice or with you know, just constantly reminding you that, you know, they're paying attention. And that's another level of excitement, stress, focus, uh, and everything else. The losses, though, are in some ways, in, in many ways, teach you more 
And they're almost sweeter when you're able to come out the other side and still feel good about where things landed. Don't know if I'd feel the same way if, you know, if I had, you know, just had a bunch of failures and nothing else. So, (laughs) but there were some big failures. And, you know, I think about our process in becoming a public company and executing the merger with with the Vornado, Charles E. Smith, um, you know, DC assets. You know, we tried that deal uh, several times. It first started in 2013. We worked on it for 18 months. And then in January of 2015, the deal was off. And that was a time, you know, that I really wondered what we were going to do next because the, the deal made a lot of sense. We loved the opportunity to acquire their assets here and to really kind of apply our skill set to repositioning and turning them around. We, we just thought that was a great value creation opportunity. We had a very hard time really digesting the fact that it had just failed. Then we worked towards positioning ourselves to potentially access the public markets on our own, only to realize that uh, that, was, that was very costly. We were, I think, a bit too small in our then configuration, and, and it really didn't pan out for some of those reasons. And then, you know, you may recall, we attempted to, to merge with another company, and we cut a very good deal for ourselves. The shareholders of that company also agreed that it was a very good deal for us and not a good deal for them, and so they rejected it. That was a third rejection. Here we were, you know, after three solid years, three very solid failures, and each one of those kind of beats you down a little bit and makes you wonder, you know, are we just barking up the wrong tree? Are we ever going to, you know, make this happen? Because we did believe that being a public company was a better structure for what we were trying to achieve, this long-term, multi-phase ownership of concentrated real estate in urban infill locations. Didn't lend itself to all kinds of different funds and you know, transactions here and there and in and out all the time. And so, but we had a very hard time finding our way there in the most efficient manner possible. And then the Vernado deal came back around again for the second time. It was then that they moved very fast. And we told them, we said, you've got one shot to really try to put this thing back together again if you want to do it. And to their credit, they did. And so we, you know, we really, I think, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat there, but not until we had really labored for uh, years and uh, had, had a tremendous number of people and a lot of time and energy and effort. And you know, people were just, exhausted. And when we finally got all that done, it was, uh, it was huge. You know, when we got, and then, you know, only six weeks after we closed the Vernado merger, Amazon announced that they were looking for a new headquarters. And so the, you know, the timing was really uncanny and very lucky. You know, we worked like mad to get the Amazon deal. And we really, a team of us really spent very little of our time doing anything else for almost a year, really just working that deal, trying to win it, doing a ton of work on behalf of the state and, and Arlington County and Alexandria. And as we got close to the finish line on that one, we developed a greater and greater and greater sense of confidence that we were going we were gonna to win, but we still didn't know. And it was a very sleepless couple of months where we thought at any moment we could see a press release saying that it had gone elsewhere. That was one you know, where, again, People always wonder, what does it feel like to win something like that? 
when you're at that stage, the feeling is less about kind of something positive entering, you know, your, your emotions, you know, it's, it's less about a positive emotion occurring than it is about eliminating a negative emotion. It's, it's eliminating the, the dread of, oh man, what if we don't win this thing? Yeah. And, and you don't even let yourself go there. I remember our, our press people were drafting press releases and they said, we have to draft a press release that, that we put out when we win and we have to dra- draft one that we put out when we lose. And I honestly didn't even look at the, the one uh, for if we lose. I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I just said, this, this would be such a terrible outcome. I just can't go there. And thankfully, we didn't have to go there. You know, very different experiences altogether. You know, you learn a lot about yourself and your team and what everybody's capable of by going through those things. Did you ever ask Jeff Bezos himself why they made the call to go to Washington? Did he ever tell you that? I've not asked him that question. I, I have spent a, little, a very little bit of time with Jeff on a couple of different occasions. And I know from his team why they came here. And, and a lot of it had to do with, you know, primary was the, the market. You know, th- this marketplace sure. from a yeah. cost of living, tech talent, hiring, pace of hiring, everything else. That was a big component of it. The other big component of it was going where they felt like they were welcome mm-hmm. and that they could, they could get a lot done. And a big part of that was partnering with JBG Smith because they had a single landowner that they could do a single transaction with mm-hmm. and get the whole deal done. Yep. And not just done today, but done tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because, you know, we, we as you know, post-closing, we continue to work on new deals with them. We're always talking about new things with them. And they viewed that as a perfect recipe for long-term growth. And Arlington County did a great job really making them feel like they would be welcome and appreciated as a significant employer in the market. And obviously, as you said, you know, there's lots of politics and everybody's got an opinion about these big companies. You know, the fact is they invest very heavily in these communities and they, they hire a lot of people. And, you know, last I checked, communities where lots of people are getting hired tend to be uh, better off than communities where lots of people are losing their jobs and, uh, or not growing. And so I think Amazon really just wanted to know that they were going into a place where that dynamic would be seen for what it is and would be valued and respected. And, and I think Arlington County and the Commonwealth of Virginia did a terrific job really communicating that effectively while also staying true to their principles. And, you know, they, they made a good sound financial deal with their incentives. And Arlington uh, has still made Amazon go through the same process everybody else goes through to get their approvals. And again, coming back to us and our role, having us as their partner and their Sherpa in going through that process, I think gave them a lot of comfort. And so it was really a combination of, of all of those factors that, that made a difference in the end. It won't surprise me if they ask you to help them look for sites elsewhere around the country someday. But it, it, they, you know. they, they might, you know, nothing surprises me with Amazon. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I was going to ask one last question, but I think you're probably running out of time. I, I mean, if they could oh, go ask, ahead. go ahead. I, I've got one more. Sorry about the could, bird in the background, by the way. It's okay. If, if you could post a, a statement on a billboard 
on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Matt? Gosh, that's a great question. Not, not having thought about it, I know you sent me uh, some questions ahead of time, but th- I haven't actually thought about this one. There's, there's Maybe a sign. The, there's the a- billboard should be at National Airport as you're crossing the new bridge that you're building into National Landing. Let's put right, it there. Right, yeah, maybe <laughs> put our logo on it. Call this number That's right. the lease space or, you know, buy, buy JBT Smith stock. <laughs> um, although there's probably some marketing rules around that one that, that our, our general counsel will, will need to tell me we can't do. But no, look, I just put a, uh, a little sign up over, this, over the, the, the entry to our basement for, for the benefit of our kids. It just says, be kind to one another. It's a, good, it's a good reminder. A lot of people are not as kind, as respectful, as fair as I think they should be. And I think that's one of these things that really actually does make the world a better place if people are, are kind to each other. I agree. Even if they disagree, even if you hate the other person's ideas, if you can do that without hating the other person uh, in many cases who you've never even met. I think it will make the world and the country and our communities better. And it's simple. And maybe it's too simple for people to, to really act upon it. But I think if people saw that every day and had it in their heads when they were behaving towards their fellow man, it would probably make life a little bit better for everybody. Well, being in Washington, D.C., the powers that be need to listen to that message you just said. <laughs> oh, boy right now, particularly. Well, Matt, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy hearing your story. So thanks again. And uh, have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. So we just had a very interesting conversation with Matt Kelly, uh, the chairman of JBG Smith. Matt is one heck of a guy and a energetic CEO of a company that. has gone through tremendous change over the last several years. And obviously, Amazon being the the main thrust for the company now, and it's only going to expand probably. So now I'm transitioning to our usual uh, postscript with uh, Tom Amos. Thank you for joining me again. So fire away with your questions. Okay, here's what I was thinking about throughout the interview. I think that a lot of your guests do a great job at this. They're all very busy people, but Matt Kelly really did did an exceptional job. You know, all of these guests that you're interviewing are very busy people. Matt Kelly is running a organization with a thousand employees. I'm sure he's got a lot on his table, but he took the time throughout this interview to be present. Really, the interview never felt rushed. I know that you and and Matt recorded one session and we had some follow-up questions that we wanted to ask him and he was willing to jump back on another call a second time. And, you know, if somebody like Matt Kelly can take the uh, time to not rush and, and really answer questions thoroughly, surely I can do that in my own life. And I thought that was a nice little reminder to kind of be present, focused, and not feel rushed when, when doing an activity or meeting with somebody and make sure that we're a good listener. And I thought Matt Kelly did a great job with that. So wanted to talk about the Amazon deal and some of the incentives that Matt Kelly covered there during the podcast. That's something that everybody's obviously very interested in. And we're already seeing how kind of the Arlington area and, and surrounding areas are transforming as a result. Yeah. 
they were they went public and then within months the announcement was made and i wrote my friend there rob i said rob go get it i think i said <laughs> it in the podcast and he was like we're already in john we're we're all in yeah, yeah we're gonna go and i just thought to myself when i when i heard the announcement i said there's no place else in the united states it's a better location than crystal city virginia for that okay for that property yeah so it's gonna be a good i'm not saying that i was a wizard or prescient or whatever but i just couldn't think of a better location than that for it frankly yeah. not that i know every property in the country but they're just a confluence of all the things that they needed and wanted to, and they have said in their rfp so i thought it was fascinating you know by comparison because i spent a lot of time down there in atlanta they were a front runner i think towards the end some regions of atlanta and the attitude of talking to my friends from Atlanta versus the attitude towards people around here was was drastically different. People are like, it's like the traffic's going to be terrible. It's going to ruin the city. All these, things, you know, the, the the public persona just was very different. Everybody was very excited and we really wanted it. And I guess, you know, that's what Matt Kelly, uh, Matt Kelly talks about is that, that the support kind of of this, this region really kind of influenced Amazon to selecting it. So. Well, in New York, the whole situation was, you know, as you may recall, they, they announced both cities that was they were splitting it. And right. then all the protests occurred in Brooklyn and and uh, in New York City. And they Amazon just shook their heads and said, No, we're not gonna we're not gonna go someplace where we're not wanted. Yeah. So I looked up he mentioned the the incentive package that was offered and this was some of these these numbers are based on when the deal was announced in 2018 november 2018 was when the deal was announced so i don't know if any of this has changed since then but upon announcing it they had offered a performance-based incentive for the full package for amazon to come to the arlington area and as matt kelly mentioned a large portion of that's based around the jobs that they'll be bringing to the area, estimated $25,000 jobs to the Arlington area. And then also we mentioned that the taxes on hotel rooms was a proponent of the incentive. So we looked into that a little bit more, about $23 million of the incentive package for Arlington comes from the transient occupancy tax, which is just simply a, a tax on hotels. So I thought that was interesting. I, I, didn't, I didn't recognize that before the interview. And some other noteworthy items for the incentive package were Virginia Tech is going to be opening a new campus in the area. And then Matt also mentioned all of the funding for transportation and infrastructure upgrades to the area. So I think it's it's really exciting and, and, and cool to kind of see how this is gonna change this region. He's bringing Route 1 down to the ground, which is interesting. It's been a bridge for forever in essence because you know, originally Crystal City was developed on air rights. So Bob Smith, who was Charles E. Smith's son, went to Crystal City in the early 1960s and optioned the land there from the railroad on a land lease basis, on an air rights basis, and built his first building over there, which was an apartment building in the 1960s. And then, of course, it grew into over I don't know how many square million square feet of office space exactly by the time he was done developing there, but pretty significant. Yeah, obviously. I'm sure lowering down Route One is really going to make that whole area feel a lot more 
approachable and, and walkable and everything else that comes along with that. So, so John, I, I, I had a question, you know, Matt Kelly talked a lot about his career path and how he ended up where he did and, and mentions his father's advice as far as selecting a career, being a big influence on that. And I was wondering, I thought it'd be good for us to talk about, you know, you personally kind of, how did you select a career in real estate finance and end up doing what you did? Well, my, my parents were investors in single family homes on the side, kind of doing that. My mother then became a residential real estate agent as a result of that interest, et cetera. And so I'd seen them being involved in more in residential, but I knew there was more to it than that. And I saw, and I was also in retail growing up with my dad. So I was in, you know, working as a young youngster in high school and college in retail. So I saw these large commercial properties and I said, you know, regional shopping centers. And I said, wow, these are really cool properties. <laughs> How this all works. So that intrigued me, but I went to college thinking initially I was an engineer thinking about that. And then I shifted majors and went into political science because I thought maybe I'd be a lawyer, but I didn't know. And then my, by the time my senior year came around at, at Michigan, I decided, hey, real estate still is really very interesting to me. So I took a real estate course and I really fell in love with it there. And then there really weren't any re graduate real estate programs at the time. So I said, well, I'm going to go see if I can get an MBA. So I ended up going to California, San Francisco, and they didn't have a specialty. So I looked for courses around town that, and there was a college at University of San Francisco. There was another college called Gold Gate that had real estate courses. Turns out one of the professors there was a Knight professor. It's similar to the Knight programs here in Washington with Georgetown and Johns Hopkins. Professor there was the founder of Reef Funds, R-R-E-E-F, which then became one of the largest pension fund investing real estate funds. And he turned me on to the institutional real estate industry. So I started interviewing with people and networking mm -hmm. and ended up joining Prudential Insurance in their training program on the job training. And they were in debt and equities and development, all three. And I I was pigeonholed into the debt sequence, so I did debt for them, and that got my career started. So it kind of evolved as a child, and then it, it got into, as I dug further into the industry, I figured I wanted something a little bit more challenging than residential real estate, because I think I see residential real estate as more of an emotional decision, whereas commercial real estate is a business decision, and business people are involved. So I kind of more like the B2B environment in real estate better. So that's really how my career's kind of started. I like that. I like that. Well, great. Well, that's, that's all I had today, John. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you listeners for listening to this uh, episode and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.